Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. I'm Jason Dick, Deputy Editor at CQ Roll Call, and I'm guest hosting this week while Bill is off. As usual on Friday, we have our roundtable of journalists to discuss the week's political news. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol is taking shape, sort of. Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier this month named her eight picks, including Republican Liz Cheney. This week, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy named his five picks, but then Pelosi vetoed two of them. Come Tuesday, when the panel meets for its first hearing, we still don't know who all will show up. Meanwhile, infrastructure summer continues, kind of, with one step back in the Senate and another step forward. Protests against voting restrictions ramped up, including on the Capitol grounds. And the COVID-19 pandemic reminded us all it's not quite done making people sick, including in the Congress and at the White House. Joining me today to talk about these topics and more are Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th News. Hello, Amanda. Hello, thanks for having me. Scott Wong, senior staff writer for The Hill. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jason. And Abby Livingston, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune, appearing with us on the pod for the first time. Abby, welcome. And while we've got you here at the beginning, tell us a little bit about your gig at the Texas Tribune. Yes, thanks so much for having me. The Texas Tribune, which is a newish news organization in the context of uh, we're about a little over 10 years old. Uh, and we're the largest statewide news organization in the state of Texas. So um, we got the, the state continues to accelerate in making news and keeps us busy. It certainly does. And we're going to talk about some of uh, some of your home state uh, folks from Texas who have migrated to D.C. for the <laughs> for a, a little interregnum in their lives over voting rights. So uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but again, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, let's start off uh Talking about voting rights, uh, Amanda, you spent part of your uh, uh, recent uh, time and reporting down in Georgia for a voting rights hearing that the Senate Rules and Administration Committee convened. Uh, tell us about your reporting trip and the significance of why Amy Klobuchar and her Mary Band went to Georgia in the first place. Yes. So they were in Georgia because Georgia was one of the first states to this year to pass one of the um, the restrictive voting laws we've seen uh, Republican state legislators, legislate, legislatures uh, pass uh, this year. And so they took kind of the field hearing process to Georgia. It was in the Atlanta area. Um, Georgia obviously uh, voted for Joe Biden. Um, it's the first Democrat they've backed since 1992. Um, they have two Democratic senators for the first time in a long time. And that kind of inspired this backlash at the Republican legislature 
and they passed a restrictive law. And so the senators went down to hear about kind of how that was impacting people on the ground there. It was their first field hearing. I don't think it will be the last. I, I would guess not. Um, Scott, uh, you're, you have been up on the Hill for, for quite a long time and seen the way the, these issues sort of play out where people, um, you know, they get very interested in addressing a topic and then, you know, somebody says no and it sort of goes away. I, I feel like with all the, the protests that have gone on on the Democratic side and so forth, people who are, are um, thinking that a lot of these voting restrictions is, is, are really like sort of an assault on their our ideas of, of democracy, it seems like we're we're not seeing a lot on the Hill, right? Well, what we're seeing on the Hill are uh, protests over in some of the Senate buildings, including by uh, top members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, you saw Joyce Beatty, the leader of the Black Caucus last week, get arrested uh, while protesting um, and trying to urge the Senate to pass voting rights. Yesterday, Hank Johnson was among those arrested. So you're seeing um, protests, but the reason why they're protesting is is because not only frustration at Senate Republicans, but also frustration uh, at the Biden administration and the president himself. Because just last week he gave a, a big speech saying, "Look, voting rights and and the assault on voting rights is the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War," and yet progressives and and other activists. And CBC members feel like he's not putting any political muscle behind an effort to get it passed over in the Senate. It already passed the House, where where Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats control. Um, But they want the president to use the bully pulpit even more to get on the phones, to work every angle. And they feel that's not really happening because they feel like he's entirely focused at the moment on his infrastructure package on the 3.5% uh, trillion dollar human infrastructure plan for later this year uh, and other stuff they believe is sort of falling by the wayside. Yeah. And actually, we've got a little sound clip of uh, the president talking about voting rights uh, that that, uh, that you mentioned. I want to see the United States Congress, the United States Senate pass S1 and S4, the John Lewis Act, get on my desk so I can sign it. But here's the deal. What I also want to do I want to make sure we bring along not just all the Democrats. We bring along Republicans who I know know better. They know better than this. Abby, uh, you are, uh, you know, again, a, a Texan yourself, and you're, you're witnessing sort of this, uh, this, this migration of Texas Democrats in the legislature to, the, uh, to Washington to talk to try to, you know, cast some attention on what Texas is trying to do on voting restrictions. Is the president, uh, is, is he, is he being realistic? You think about, uh, the, the willingness of Republicans to play ball? It, it seems like you're, uh, the Texas Democrats who came here don't think that Republicans are, are, are really sort of meeting them even halfway. Well, they were, uh, excited yesterday because they met, uh, if my, uh, sources were correct. They were on track. I'm assuming it happened. They met with um, staffers to senators, Lisa Murkowski and Pat Toomey. Um, And so I think they're looking at every option in any way, whether it's breaking the filibuster, carving out the filibuster, working with Republicans. I think that they're ready to play ball no matter which path 
seems viable. I just really have a hard time seeing a viable path at this point on any of these tracks. And um, But these Texans have been assured by congressional leaders, um, top Democrats in the country, that um, there is still a way to make this happen. They're hopeful. But, I, you know, as a longtime congressional observer, I just have a really hard time seeing how this works out for Democrats. Yeah, it, it does seem like just one of those intractable things. I mean, I, you know, Scott, you mentioned that Hank Johnson, you know, was arrested, you know, this week, Joyce Beatty last week. I'm guessing that we'll see some more of these protests on the Hill. But like Abby said, I mean, the the regardless of who the visitors are, I mean, it doesn't seem like Mitch McConnell is even like it's, it's even a second thought that he would uh, lend any kind of uh, ability to move to this with the with you know, with the filibuster rules the way they are. Yeah, that's right. And Joe Biden is sort of giving um, McConnell and others cover uh, as he's facing pressure to get rid of the filibuster or have a carve out for the voting rights issue, as Abby mentioned, um, just at a town hall event, a CNN town hall event in Cincinnati this week, Joe Biden was pressed on whether he would change the filibuster, uh, especially for voting rights. And he said uh, he rejected that idea as he's done for months on end, including during the campaign, saying it would throw the entire Congress into chaos. So look, Joe Biden is, is a deal maker. He's somebody known for having good relations across the aisle. He's an institutionalist who served in the Senate for you know, 35 plus years. And so he's he's not about to uh, get rid of the filibuster. He's made that crystal clear. And so, as Abby said, it's really hard to see a path forward when voting rights is not the, the preeminent issue uh, of this administration in terms of what they're trying to do uh, this year before we get into 2022, which is the election year. And then, uh, you know, everything sort of gets bogged down at that point. Amanda, you've uh, you've made a point of making sure you get out uh, among among voters outside of Washington, you know, with the Georgia uh, trip uh, that you covered and the voting rights field hearing, you know, that you covered just the latest. I mean, are how what's it like in these situations? Are people is it is it just activists sort of showing up on, on this? Are there are there folks that seem like genuinely concerned outside of, of, you know, people who we would know to call? Is it a, a regular person sort of concern or is this something that, you know, conversations that politicians are having with themselves? I do think some of this is starting to break through. So the field hearing itself in Atlanta was not open to the general public. Um, Atlanta is still pretty shut down from COVID. I was kind of surprised the level to which it's still shut down. Um, Senator Klobuchar had gone to Raphael Warnock's church that morning, um, but they're still doing virtual services, for example. Um, but we are seeing protests in places like West Virginia um, that you know might not necessarily be the first state you'd think of when it comes to like protesting voting rights. It's a very white state. And it's uh, black activists who have been kind of leading the charge on this. But, you know, black voters are who elected vote, who elected Joe Biden. They elected Joe Biden. So I don't think that this is something that uh, politicians are going to be able to ignore, including the White House. 
Um, and I do think that it's an issue that's on people's radar because these state laws have gotten so much press. I, I think I feel like we could g- kind of go on a little bit on this, but I, I, I think that we're going to see more uh, happen. Um, eventually, those Texas Democrats will have to go home. Uh, eventually, they'll run out of folks to arrest, <laughs> perhaps uh, in, in the Senate Hart building. But I, I do want to jump from here to talk about um Another another sort of important topic, which is this uh, select committee that the House formed uh, to investigate the January six attacks. Um, you know, this this was the fallback position uh, originally. Uh, that there was a proposal to start a bipartisan uh, and nonpartisan, you know, kind of commission uh, along the lines of the 9-11 commission. No, no current office holders would be able to serve on it uh, and they would be given a sort of a wide palette uh, that died in the Senate, even though it got you know more than 50 votes uh, to, to proceed. So the fallback position for Nancy Pelosi in the House was the select committee. Uh, Re- Republican leaders were were not. Uh, they were not interested in in uh, in playing ball with it, and for the most part, they kept their ranks together. Scott, have you seen um, you know th- this sort of animosity? Uh, you know, with you know, w- once Nancy Pelosi said Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, two of Kevin McCarthy's picks for the committee, uh, have you have you seen this kind of animosity? This didn't seem fake. Where, wh- before you talk, we'll, we'll have a we have a. a um, a clip from McCarthy I want to play. Why is Nancy Pelosi so afraid of the truth coming out? We cannot afford to have a speaker like this. I mean, he granted, you know, people like to feign uh, that they're angry and so forth. Ben, and McCarthy is is playing the hand he has dealt. But this, this seems kind of real, this, this sort of venom that they're spitting at each other. Well, I think what's what's important to note is that you know, the venom between the two parties has been there since January 6th, since since the attack was underway, uh, since the the days after the attack, the fact that Republicans, um, nearly all Republicans took to the floor and voted to overturn the election in the moments right after uh, the Capitol was sacked. And so my takeaway is that this animosity, this anger between the two parties, you see it in in the halls. There's just not as many smiles and slaps on the back as there used to be between the two parties. Uh, it hasn't gone away. And, it's, and here we are six months later, the wounds haven't healed. And that's sort of my takeaway after after observing lawmakers this week. There's not a lot of joy on Capitol Hill and certainly not, not a lot of bipartisanship, uh, you know, unless you're talking about infrastructure. But and on a personal level, Pelosi and McCarthy have never really gotten along that well. They're of different generations. They're different type. They're di- they're, their politics are, are very different. And they've never really had the same rapport as Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner uh, or, or even Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, who are who have worked together for decades. Abby, um one thing I wondered about when when Nancy Pelosi sort of you know vetoed Jim Jordan and uh, and and um, and Banks, I, it was did she miss an opportunity? Perhaps I mean we knew that Jordan would probably go in, um, you know, to to do kind of what he did with impeachment. Did but did she miss an opportunity to have um, Jim Jordan face Mike Fanone, <laughs> the the DC Metro Police officer. Uh, who uh, was among those defending the Capitol and has been very vocal on CNN and is a fairly charismatic and aggressive dude. I, I mean, possibly. I, I think she is, I, I think Republicans who will so often say privately, she's one of the 
smartest strategic thinkers on Capitol Hill and has been for a long time. And, you know, politicians' memoirs are often very dull, but hers is interesting. And I, I believe the title of hers is Know Your Power. So she understood her power in this circumstance and leaned into it. One other thing is just, I think living in Washington, and I, I have not been out much since uh, with COVID out into other parts of the country for several months, but Washington is really shaken by this January 6th in a way that I don't think the rest of the country understands. This is fundamental to so many people who work at the Capitol. There's PTSD everywhere you look. And this is such a personal drama playing out in a way there is no other drama I've seen in my career. And on top of that, just one other note, McCarthy, I'd never seen him like that in, in that news conference. But on Instagram, he posted a photo of Jim J- Jim Banks and Jim Jordan and referred to them as Nancy Pelosi's worst nightmare. And I just kind of wonder, you know, I know that's political rhetoric, but looking back, I honestly, you know, I don't want to speak for Nancy Pelosi, but I would think her worst nightmare is being killed by a mob at the United States Capitol. And it's just, I think the rhetoric there is just fascinating. Yeah, I, I I was wondering about that myself because this, um, I mean, Nancy Pelosi really is one of the more skilled politicians and one of the more powerful people uh, who has practiced politics in the United States Congress. And you know, Amanda, what what do you do? You think that this, you know, just sort of feeds a narrative that Democrats are actually kind of care, you know, very comfortable with, which is that. Nancy Pelosi is there to stand up to people who she, you know, is is very comfortable uh, pushing back on with some of the rhetoric that they've been employing. You know, I've been going back and forth about her decision um, to remove these picks from the committee and and how that would play with the voters and whether, you know, voters like Abby said, who aren't in the Washington area, have really been following this as closely as we have and some of the things that various lawmakers have said leading up to this. I mean, you already had the one Republican who's already on the committee, Representative Cheney, uh, as we found out within the past week or so. Um, apparently, Jim Jordan came up to her on the floor the day of the insurrection, and uh, she swatted his hand away and said, you did this, and rejected his offer of help. So I'm not sure how you can have these people on a committee together actually working towards a common goal, because it's pretty clear that the Republican appointees to the committee will be, on the large part, working towards a very different goal. Um, I, you know, I go back and forth between how do you how do you do that? And also, you know, is there going to be a political cost on Democrats part to now this is going to look like the partisan process that Republicans have been saying it will be? And, and speaking of Liz Cheney, again, this is the uh, uh, daughter of you know former Vice President Dick Cheney, the former number three uh, Republican in leadership who was booted from her post uh, for uh, continuing to call out Donald Trump's, uh, you know, sort of uh, lies about election fraud and so forth. We have a speaking of uh, being forceful and being uh, uh, not afraid to say what she thinks. We have a, a, a short clip from uh, from uh, Cheney herself. The rhetoric that we have heard from the minority leader is disingenuous. And at every opportunity, the minority leader has attempted to prevent the American people from understanding what happened, to block this investigation. Today, the Speaker objected to two Republican members, one of whom may well be a material witness 
to events that led to January 6th. Uh, Scott, uh, she's referring to Jim Jordan, uh, who uh, may have been on the line with the president and may be called uh, before the committee. Uh, and then also just, you know, like the side note, the context that uh, we we know we who cover leadership stuff like this. Jim Banks was among the people, uh, you know, kind of spearheading her ouster as the number three Republican. Right. And and don't forget, Kevin McCarthy also spoke to uh, President Trump as the attack was underway. In fact, I, I pressed him on on that during a press conference uh, just this week, asking if he would uh, stand by his words that he would testify before uh, any investigating committee on that phone call. And he sort of dodged my question. Um but to, to the earlier point about whether Democrats maybe have overreached here, I think we're starting to see um, Democrats respond to that, that line of criticism because Nancy Pelosi, uh, as we understand it, is now entertaining the idea of bringing on more Republicans on this committee uh, in addition to Liz Cheney. One, one name that keeps popping up is Adam Kinzinger, who is, is a centrist Republican from Illinois, an outspoken Trump critic who has been very vocal about Trump's involvement on January 6th, um, a, a member of the military. He has a military background. And, and, um, and so we, we also saw former Congressman Denver Riggleman, uh, a Republican, former intelligence officer who was on the Hill yesterday meeting with the, the January 6th investigative team. Um, he's possibly uh, could serve as a, a staffer, a Republican staffer on the committee. So it appears that that Democrats are cognizant of this appearance, that that uh, it could appear more, more like a partisan investigation, as McCarthy has charged. And they're looking for ways to uh, make this appear at least more bipartisan. Yeah, I, I I just think you know this is going to help define the midterms as we as we uh, you know sort of ramp up. We still don't know who's running in what districts because the census and, and realignment is, is uh, still kind of underway. But I think that this is going to hang over it all. Hey, uh, before we get to our next topic, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Over half a million strong under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, members of the Laborers Union building America and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure and taking care of our energy supply by building everything from old-fashioned pipelines to new wind turbines and solar panels. Check out their website, liuna.org, and we thank the members of the Laborers Union for their support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping 
dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back. I'm Jason Dick, deputy editor at CQ Roll Call, your guest host this week while Bill is off. Joining me this Friday are Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th News, Scott Wong, senior staff writer for The Hill, and Abby Livingston, D.C. bureau chief for the Texas Tribune. It is, I, I joke that it was infrastructure summer. Uh, infrastructure week became kind of a punchline uh, during the Trump administration because we were always assured that they were going to make a lot of progress on it. Uh, it seems like they have uh, Congress and the administration do have a desire to uh, to address the, the country's uh, infrastructure woes, as well as shoehorn some some other policy priorities uh, on it. Uh, the president spoke in Cincinnati, Amanda Becker's hometown, uh, earlier this week. Abby, I, I'm curious. I mean, the do you think that infrastructure? I mean, while it certainly is a popular thing with members, is this something that moves voters? Well, I think it depends on how it's presented politically and how significant it is. Um, you know, the, the term stimulus became a dirty word when we were in the financial crisis in 2009. And the uh, the Obama effort, which was just a petty less than trillion dollars to um, stimulate the economy and shovel ready projects. Um, you know, the branding on it was, I can't even the Recovery Act or something like that. And people did not connect it with the the political language. And so I think it depends on how it's presented. I mean, we look back at FDR and, you know, that formed a generation of political alliances. But um, I think it's to be seen. But boy, Democrats seem to have a lot invested in this. And they seem to think that this is the thing that can help them through what appears to be a tough midterm ahead. That's for sure. Uh, Amanda, I mentioned that the president was in Cincinnati, um, one of the lead uh, senators who is trying to negotiate the sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, physical infrastructure, bridges, roads, and so forth, uh, is uh, Rob Portman. He's a, a senator. He's retiring. Uh, he's a Republican, and he's from the Cincinnati area. Um, you know, one, where you must have just been thrilled to see your city represented. <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I'm always thrilled when Cincinnati is in the news, um, especially <laughs> if it's not for an embarrassing reason. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, and, you know, again, Cincinnati is sort of like an old shoe that, uh, that, that people go to when, uh, old comfortable shoe when they want to show crumbling infrastructure because the Brent Spence Bridge is there. It traverses Kentucky and Ohio uh, and car- carries I-71 and I-75 Having driven that bridge, it is terrifying. Um, but again, the same question. Is this the kind of thing that people think of like that, that when they're in the voting booth? I mean, is, is this what they is this what drives them to vote or is it more along the lines of voting rights and so forth? I think people are paying attention to infrastructure in the you know, specifically kind of what their state will get for various projects. But I think what voters are paying more attention to potentially is the second phase, the human infrastructure phase, 
because that has a lot of components that if passed will have a pretty noticeable and pretty immediate impact on some people's lives. Like these uh, child tax credit payments that went out earlier this month, Um, you know, more than 80% of families were eligible to receive that. And that was just money that showed up in their account from the stimulus. And one thing that the human infrastructure package would do is make that permanent. Right now it's temporary. So I do think that they're paying attention to these negotiations, but I think it's potentially the second round that could have some more kind of in real life at the voting, at the voting booth um, impact. And Scott, we uh, we've seen you know this sort of you know dance. We had a failed vote in the Senate to advance the bipartisan uh, infrastructure plan that that Portman and and nine other uh, senators have been sort of negotiating. Democrats seem ready. The Democratic leaders, at least, seem ready to go their own way. Uh, what are you going to be watching for in the in the coming week or so uh, with with this push pull? Well, exactly, because, you know, Chuck Schumer is under a lot of pressure with time running out before senators and and House members head to uh, head on vacation for the August recess. I mean, we only have uh, about a week left uh, to get something done on infrastructure um, before Democrats decide to uh, ditch these bipartisan talks and go it alone. But I think what's motivating Biden and the White House and and some of these Democratic senators is, number one, Biden ran on uh, bipartisanship, on sort of restoring bipartisanship and civility to Washington. And so he has a lot riding on on this bipartisan deal. Um, And secondly, the people involved in these talks, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, all of these centrist Democrats, this core group, are essential uh, to whatever the Democrats will move in this second phase $3.5 trillion human infrastructure plan because Democrats have zero wiggle room. They have 50 votes. They need uh, everyone on board if they're going to pass this $3.5 trillion that will be transformational for not only the country, but for Biden's legacy. And so they're thinking about all of these things. This is part of the calculation. And I think part of why uh, Democrats and certainly Joe Biden are so invested in getting something done on a bipartisan basis on infrastructure. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about everyone's least favorite topic, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, certainly, we uh, we had sort of a boost of optimism earlier in the in the summer, uh, late spring, when, um, you know, we, we all sort of got f- fully vaccinated, not all of us, but uh, many of the people that we know, certainly the region that we're in, in the capital, masks came off, uh, bars open, restaurants, we could go to the movies again. And now uh, we are seeing a little bit of a uh, of, of a fallback. And I will say this about COVID, it is difficult to get Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, on the same page uh, about it. But uh, let's uh, we've got a clip from uh, Governor DeSantis Uh, about the COVID vaccine. If you are fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. And so these vaccines are saving lives. They are reducing mortality. Uh, Abby, we we saw, you know, earlier in the pandemic that Ron DeSantis was not as uh, concerned, it seemed, about restrictions, about, uh, you know, making sure that that Florida was following as many precautions as they could. 
Um, and and now we are at a turning point. It's not just DeSantis. It's people like Steve Scalise who got his first uh, Pfizer shot uh, last weekend. Uh, even you know Sean Hannity has gone on to exhort his uh, you know viewers to to get a vaccine. What uh, what's changed? Well, I you know. I don't know what has sparked this because we have seen a dramatic change in tone in the last few days. But, you know, I can just from personal political observations, you know, the the Texas delegation of state reps who are up here, they had an outbreak and they're all quarantining. And we could see um, the uh, the the change just instantly in that lobby. They were wearing masks. And I talked to some Capitol Hill sources and I was like, are you all nervous about meeting with the Texans? And there's a widespread sense that like any population group has probably got COVID in it among vaccinated people and they're mostly asymptomatic. So I think that it is, I think for a lot of folks, we thought we were ready to move on and that we turned a page. And, you know, I, I have a relative who um, had some health issues and the feedback from it was unrelated to COVID, but the emergency rooms are full and all over again and healthcare workers are exhausted. And so I, you know, I just wonder how much patience the rest of the wor- the country has who has been vaccinated with the rest of the country who won't get on the same page. Yeah, uh, Amanda, I, I feel like the, you know, maybe one of the you know issues that came up is that with the Delta variant, you know, a lot of the, you know, what we're seeing is that the vaccinated populations, you know, of in the United States are not getting sick. And then, but the areas that are not vaccinated are, and this is something Scalise himself talked about. And I wonder, are they thinking like, wow, we can't just have like our people getting sick? Yeah, I don't know what was behind the seat, the Republican sea change um, this week, kind of on vaccine messaging. Of course, you did have the Dow dropping 900 points one day. So maybe that got their attention on that day. Um, I think that maybe people are just finally realizing this Delta variant is very bad. And some of the things that they've said that have made people vaccine hesitant, perhaps in the past, Um, have kind of gotten us to where we are. And I think it's looking like there's a very real possibility that places are going to have to shut back down if they want to control virus control, which I think is the absolute worst outcome for pretty much any city or locality. I mean, LA is back to indoor mask wearing. I have personally started wearing a mask again um, because I think that the breakthrough rate is turning out to be uh, a lot higher than we thought. And while you are protected if you're vaccinated, Um, from the Delta variant that's very serious, there might be future variants uh, that develop in the unvaccinated population that the vaccine won't be as effective on. And we're also dealing with a situation where every child under 12 is still not vaccinated. So if you have a breakthrough infection and you're going back home to your kids, uh, that then becomes a huge issue. And Scott, uh, Abby mentioned this with uh, some of the Texas Democrats, uh, you know, meeting on the Hill last week, uh, you know, on on the on the uh, uh, print newspaper that I uh, I help uh, put together roll call. Our, one of our front pages was a bunch of unmasked people meeting with Chuck Schumer uh, from from <laughs> Texas. Um, and that is that is gone. But it's also it's not just people meeting with them. I mean, it, there's a kind of a sea change up at the Capitol where everything it was like. Bacchanal, right? <laughs> like about a month ago or so. And now people are slowly masking back up in the Capitol, it seems. I mean, on Monday, when I first entered the Capitol, almost nobody was wearing masks. Tuesday morning, I walked into the Capitol and I saw about 20 
staffers all wearing masks. And I was asking myself, what's going on here? And what had happened, and I didn't realize it, but Pelosi uh, and her entire entourage had walked into a meeting, a closed-door meeting with Democrats, all wearing masks for the first time in weeks. And what had happened, we later found out, was that uh, a White House staffer who was meeting with uh, the the Texas delegation and, and a Pelosi senior communications aide who also was in contact with the delegation um, had tested positive. And those positive tests were coming back and it, and it created a little bit of a panic in the Capitol. All of a sudden there was a long line again uh, in the COVID testing uh, site inside the Capitol. And uh, it, you know, it just showed that it, it felt like a huge step backwards, you know, and, and reflective of, of the huge step back we're taking in the country overall as, as we start to see more mass mandates uh, and, and more restrictions putting in place in, in some of these local uh, jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, the, the fear is, is real, especially related to uh, the cases that are breaking out among the vaccinated. Look, I have I have three children at home, all under uh, twelve, and so they're not vaccinated. So it, it is a real fear uh, among people who work in the Capitol about bringing COVID home to their families, and and uh, and people who are outside the Capitol bringing it home to their families. Yes, very very scary uh, stuff, and I, I didn't mean to end on a downer. So we'll go from there <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to the news of uh, our our favorite stories of the week. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about a story that's just a little off the news uh, that we cover uh, for a living uh, and uh, w- about politics and so forth. It can be about politics, but we, uh, you know, maybe outside of the purview of some of the stuff we've talked about. So, Abby, you are the guest of honor uh, being with this being your uh, first appearance. We're going to let you go first. Well, I'm honored. Um I would say my favorite story of the week. It's 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 a, something of a doom and gloom story in its own right, but um, and it's an old story. But uh, Julie K. Brown, the Miami Herald reporter who broke the Jeffrey Epstein story a couple years ago and set into sequence uh, the events that ended in his arrest, um, she's on book tour, and I've just loved listening to her interviews about her process and her determination. Um, it's just like a good reminder as a reporter um, of what excellence is and to kind of up my game a bit. And so um, I've just truly enjoyed listening to her because it's just such phenomenal reporting. Excellent. Amanda, what's your favorite story of the week? Well, it feels weird to choose this um, under the word favorite. So <laughs> I, I will preface this by saying this is not my favorite story, but it's <clears throat> it's one that I can't stop thinking about. And it was in the New Yorker. Um, I think the date it was technically published is the 19th, although um, it's from the July 26th issue. Shameless um, plug for your publication. Yes. <laughs> it, it was uh, by Rachel Aviv, and the title is The German Experiment That Placed Foster Children with Pedophiles. Um, and I just, my jaw was on the floor for most of this story. And um, one of the the people she interviews in the story who was placed with a pedophile. I mean, this was going on until 2002 or 2003. Um, and it was kind of this social experiment being carried out in Germany where they, you know, like the title says, placed foster children with pedophiles. So um, I have not been able to stop thinking about that story. It's, it is a, uh, it is a, it, it's, 
as you said, a jaw dropper. It is just unbelievable to think that anybody at any point thought that this was a good idea. It's just especially so recently and also just many trigger warnings for anyone who goes to uh, look that up and read it. Scott, how about you? Well, uh, you know, we have a couple swimmers in our family, uh, two daughters, uh, one of whom will be uh, in a in a big swim meet this weekend. And, and so we will be rooting on. Of course, we didn't get to the Olympics, but we will be rooting on uh, some of the local uh, D.C. area Olympians who are in Tokyo uh, as the games kick off. And I know there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of serious stories concerning the Olympics, you know, possible covid outbreaks and, and uh, protests. But uh, hopefully this will be a distraction some, from some of the heavier news. And, and we have, you know, just in, in our own local area uh, you know, Katie Ledecky and uh, Phoebe Bacon, the swimmer, as well as Kevin Durant from PG County, who will be uh, on the NBA Olympic basketball team. So we're looking forward to a lot of good games. Oh, and a Texas Longhorn, Kevin Durant. There you go. <laughs> I, I was going to put in my uh, my local uh, hook on there, too, which is that after a heartbreaking loss in the NBA finals, Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns is is also uh, an, an NBA Olympian. Uh, so I'm I'm also looking forward to some some good uh, stories there, too. Uh, my my favorite story is is a, a, a little weird. Uh, I, I will admit, um, I, I started thinking about this a little bit with all the billionaires we've been shooting into space. You know, first Richard Branson last week, and this week Jeff Bezos. Um, you know, it's it's you know criticism aside of like the propriety of like going into space, you know, at a time when the the planet sort of needs needs those billions elsewhere. I mean, this is. I think a, a part of like the human experience, but then um, again, like uh, returning to the New Yorker, I, I came back to this story uh, about a movie called Settlers uh, that Anthony Lane wrote about and and has been released uh, this this week. It's a movie by Wyatt Rockefeller, and it it's a consider it sort of a reality check about like what would happen if we were able to get off the planet if it continues to go to hell uh, and and settle somewhere else, and which is that. The, it kind of poses the question: What if Mars, in this case, just sucks? <laughs> what if what if it's one of these places that it, it's it's not such a picnic uh, from from being on Earth as as much a challenge as as uh, as, a, as a dystopic future may uh, face? So it's uh, I mean I'm I'm a sci-fi guy and a movie guy as as uh, as most of uh, you all know who've if listened to me for like five minutes. Uh, but I thought you know this is a fun um, sort fun sort of wrap up of the of the billionaires in space i mean i'm sure that we'll we'll eventually return to space you know for first you know somebody besides uh, those worth billions of dollars but it was a sort of a reality check that we really don't know what's waiting for us <laughs> so uh that's gonna do it for this edition of the bill press pod thank you for listening and thank you to our panelists for sacrificing some very valuable coffee time this morning amanda becker washington correspondent for 19th news thank you amanda thank you Scott Wong, Senior Staff Writer for The Hill. Much obliged, Scott. Thanks a lot. And again, welcome to Abby Livingston, uh, first of, we hope, many appearances on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you very much, Abby, DC Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.